Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 25th, 2016. This is episode 1834 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Monday! And you're like, why is this jerk so excited about Monday? Guys, I'm excited about every day of my life, and I'll tell you why. It's the only one we've got, and we've got to live it all 100% amped up at all times if we're going to get anywhere in this world, because if you don't live this way, somebody else will, and they're your competition for the things you're trying to achieve, whether they're trying to achieve them in the marketplace or they're trying to achieve them in the, the statist place where they're actually impeding you. You've got to be up, you've got to be at them, you've got to be willing to go, and you've got to be willing to work hard for what you want. We can't sit around making excuses that it's hard or that there's laws against what we really want to do or what have you. We have to work with the system that we're in, and uh, we have to work as far outside of that system as we can get away with, deal with the interactive edge, and keep on kicking ass. We're going to talk about all of that today and a lot more. Like I said, it is a Monday, and that means it is time for a listener feedback show. This is the stuff you send to me. Today we're going to talk about something a bunch of you guys have sent to me. I mean a bunch, like hundreds like I've never gotten so many, email, so many emails about something over a two-week period of my life. It's called FarmBot automation coming to your backyard for a couple thousand bucks that will feed you. Yeah, automation is coming in ways you can't even imagine yet. And uh, the homeschool trend continues as, as people start to notice even in the best school districts. People buy a house in the very best school district they can afford and then turn around and homeschool. What does that mean? It means the trend is really kicking in. It also means something that people maybe don't realize just yet and why there's so much opposition to homeschooling. I'm not saying there should be opposition. I'm saying you'll understand some of why it's coming when I explain this to you. Also, using the pool to stay cool. We'll talk about that. A listener's after-action review on a massive bug out and then a return. We'll talk about what is prepping, what is hoarding, and why you should care about the difference. And hey, cops, you want us to support you? Stop shooting dogs. Not just not shooting people, man. The dog shooting's got to stop, guys. Uh, we'll talk about another story of this and why it's a much bigger problem than people realize. And the concept of bugging in is a gray man. The good, the bad, and the tinfoil. All of that today and more on the Survival Podcast. Before that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode I have. Damn the Yankees, the Farron Riots of New York. I have Welcome to the German Union. And I have Faraday discovers the law of electrolysis. In other news, I also have Parliament is burning. The furnace normally used for coal is filled with wood. Not a good idea. The flames start in the flue, and most of Westminster Palace goes up in flames. The American, uh, the American electric motor is built. Thomas Davenport takes apart an electromagnet and proves the wiring using silk from his wife's dress. What a gal. Emily Davenport's name will be included on the patent for the DC electric motor. It's the real motor, folks. And Whistler's mother gives birth to Whistler. That's the guy that painted the famous picture, Whistler's mother. I've never understood that one, guys. People say, look at this classic piece of American art. And I go, uh-huh. It's an old lady sitting in a chair. I don't get it. I'm sorry, I don't. I don't think I ever will. I actually think the the story of Whistler and uh, actually Whistler's mother is actually far more interesting than the painting, but 
maybe we'll save that for another day. Anyway, I'm going to read uh, Faraday's Discover of the Law of Electrolysis, and I'm going to repeat the whole thing about a real electric motor being built. Yeah, this is the time frame analogous to the time frame of today that will tie in with you know automation and just how much is being discovered and how radically it will change the world. Anyway, Faraday discovers the law of electrolysis. What is electrolysis? Certain chemical reactions will occur when a slight electrical charge flowing through a solution. The electrical charge allows certain materials to move from one place to another at the molecular level. Thus, one can use electrolysis to place a fine coating of metal onto another. This is called electroplating. I'm oversimplifying. Just know that your average lead-acid battery works using electrolysis as it discharges and recharges. Lead-acid batteries can produce a little hydrogen if not properly charged, but not a lot. I can imagine other electrolysis applications that can produce large amounts of hydrogen. A word to the wise is sufficient. I hope everyone out there is wise enough to use caution. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, why would anyone care? Because electrolysis can occur at home, even within your plumbing pipes. If you have both galvanized and copper pipe as part of your installation, any electrical flow, such as grounding your electrical grid to the nearest metal pipe, could start that process. Small holes in the pipe will develop over time. Remember, I'm not an expert solving such problems. I simply know that electrolysis can be a problem. I'm told that an insulating dielectric union can be used. It is a connector with a rubber insulator that acts as a barrier to electrical flow. Of course, that kills your ground connection, so grab a piece of reinforcement bar and pound it into the ground. Connect your electrical ground to that. Done. On a boat, any metal exposed to the water in a weak electric charge could damage your boat over time. Like, say, your propellers. Doesn't take a lot of electrolysis to damage them, and it doesn't have to be coming from your boat. Could be any boat in the marina. I'm told boat owners use a zinc anode. It's a preventative measure. In theory, any electrolysis going on will trip the zinc first. It is part of a normal boat maintenance that checks one's zinc anodes. Again, I'm not an expert. I simply know that it can be a problem. Good luck. You know what this makes me think of when I read this? Says I, he's, I, I, I'm not an expert, and I don't correct these problems. That commercial that's out now, there's a couple different ones where the guy's like, yeah, you got a termite problem. And the guy's like, yeah, get rid of them. He's like, oh, I, I, I don't, I'm not an exterminator. I'm just a, an informer. I just tell you if you have a problem. The kid falls through the stairs, and the guy says, you have a problem, and he leaves. That just makes me not think about that. Anyway, I, I think what you need to realize is, As Alex said as we came into this part of the 1800s, that over a 20-year period, a young adult wouldn't recognize the world they grew up in. They just, the world is changing at a pace from the, you know, through the 1800s that you can't even imagine. It, it, it will do it multiple times again, a quickening, an acceleration of advancement of mankind. And not necessarily our ethos and our morals and things like that, What, I, what I'm saying is an advancement in our abilities, our capabilities. In fact, I think in many instances our capabilities grew faster than our maturity as a species. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't have wiped out, what, 60 million people in World War II? Our capability to murder exceeded our capacity to be responsible with it. I'm just saying. Just think about that as we head into some of the things that we're heading into now. Uh, some of the stuff that we're heading for with our advancement of technology can be the most liberating, freeing things ever brought to humanity, or they can be the most destructive. It's up to us to determine how that's going to work out. Before we get into the main topic today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life, and the advice I gave most business owners every day was... 
Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at TSPGear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. All right, with that, let's get into our, our first topic. I want to talk to you about a thing called FarmBot. FarmBot is a robot, sort of. It's really a CNC machine with programming attached to it, which makes it, well, uh, a robot. But what this machine does is it it basically runs a little tiny... It really isn't... I call it more what they've built so far, GardenBot. GardenBot. But I think it can be expanded to be truly FarmBot, and it's called the Genesis, where it all begins. Um, there's a great five-minute video on their website. It's at FarmBot.io. It loses a little bit with uh, without the the video, but I'm going to play the audio for you. If you've seen the video or you don't want to listen to the whole thing, you just want my thoughts on it. It's about five minutes long, so if you jump about five minutes ahead, you'll catch the end of it. And uh, you'll be out on the other side, so to speak, listening to me commentate on it. But this is a big deal, and I'll explain why after you hear all of this. The current food production system, one cannot look past how broken it is. We have surrendered our knowledge and control over how our food is being produced. And as a result, we're destroying our health and the environment. It's a shame. We're here to change that. Three years ago, I had an idea for a new paradigm of food production. The idea lies at the intersection of automation, the open source DIY maker movement, and small scale polycrop farming. And over the last three years, a small dedicated team and I have been working to make this idea a reality. Introducing FarmBot Genesis, humanity's first open source CNC farming machine. FarmBot moves around in the XYZ space, day and night, seven days a week, growing food for you, just the way you want it to be grown. FarmBot precisely sows seeds in any pattern and density you want, and then waters them efficiently, the exact amount that each plant needs based on its type, its age, soil conditions, the local weather, and your growing preferences. FarmBot can grow a wide variety of crops all in the same area at the same time, while each plant is cared for individually in an optimized, automated way. By growing many types of plants at once, your garden will benefit from the natural advantages of polycropping and crop rotation, while you and your family gain from a healthy and varied diet. Using the onboard camera and advanced computer vision software, FarmBot diligently monitors your garden, detects weeds as soon as they emerge, and then buries them under the soil. With the soil sensor, FarmBot can show you how your garden changes over time, enabling smarter, more efficient farming with each passing season. With FarmBot, your garden will flourish, your plants will thrive, and you will gain access to fresh food grown right in your backyard with the practices that you believe in. You control and configure FarmBot using a powerful web-based interface, so no coding is required to grow food. With the Sequence Builder and Scheduler, you combine the most basic operations of FarmBot into custom sequences for seed injection, watering, and even whole regimens for taking care of a plant throughout its life. 
The drag and drop farm designer allows you to graphically design the layout of your plants for a game-like experience that's fun, fast, and easy. You simply press the synchronize button and FarmBot does the rest. FarmBot's hardware is designed for easy assembly and modification. With the included tools, you will assemble FarmBot to a size that suits your needs. And because everything is made from corrosion-resistant aluminum, stainless steel, and 3D-printed plastic, your FarmBot will work for years out in the elements. We spent months prototyping the universal tool mounting system, allowing FarmBot to automatically switch tools for the task at hand. It provides 12 electrical connections, three liquid or gas lines, and magnetic coupling to support any tool you can imagine. So far, we've developed the seed injector, watering nozzle, soil sensor, and weeding tools to cover the basics of food production. FarmBot's core electronics include the Raspberry Pi computer, the Arduino Mega microcontroller, and a ramp shield. Combined with powerful NEMA 17 stepper motors and rotary encoders, tools are reliably positioned within millimeter accuracy. And our flexible hardware and software platform is ready for you to modify and expand upon FarmBot's abilities. Want to design your own tools? Go right ahead. Need FarmBot to control lights? That's easy. Inspired to go off-grid with solar power and collected rain? It's already been done, and we can show you how to do it. And the most important feature of all is that FarmBot is 100% open source. All of our software, hardware plans, 3D CAD models, and documentation is free for you to download and improve upon. We've written step-by-step -step assembly instructions, documented past versions of the hardware, and even set up a community wiki and forum for collaboration. In the last year alone, we've seen independent replications of FarmBot all across the globe by teams and individuals and companies small and large. Now we want you to join us. We're looking for inventors, garage tinkers, hackers, and DIY food enthusiasts to dive in with us and help grow this exciting new technology platform. FarmBot Genesis is 1.5 meters wide and 3 meters in length. It's perfect for getting started in a small space. The kit is fully weatherproof and can be placed outdoors, in a greenhouse, or even on a rooftop. With your support, we'll be able to manufacture and distribute these kits at an affordable price, continue building software features, and openly research and develop FarmBot technology with you. Pre-order your FarmBot today and help pioneer this new paradigm of farming. It's time to own your food. Okay, so I, I think you get the point. This, uh, this is a tool... And I've seen large, expensive robots like this that are being used on large-scale farms. And uh, about, oh, six, eight months ago, I posted about this on Facebook to many of the permaculture and agriculture groups that I'm part of on Facebook, including the regenerative agriculture group that I founded. And I found the pushback um, illogical, to say the least. But the biggest objection was this is only for millionaire farmers with giant farms and it's going to destroy the world and it, it's just for chemical agriculture. And I, it, it really kind of just, I, I just thought, do you people not understand how this stuff works? And I kind of like to take you through a progression of what you can expect out of all this amazing high end technology as it gets scaled down to individual user levels. In the 1980s, I wanted a printer. I wanted a printer really, really bad. I wanted a printer to go with my Commodore 64 computer, and it was a dot matrix printer that I wanted. It made a horrid sound like this when it printed. The problem was I didn't have the almost $1,000 to get a printer. 
And my father wasn't about to give me $1,000 just so I could print crap out that I didn't really need, and he could listen to the sound of, you get it, right? Um, so I didn't get a printer. Today, ink costs more than some printers. They're pretty much giving the printer away at cost or below cost to get you on their ink, and they're selling the ink to make money. Pretty much today, anybody that you know that has a full-time job and wants a computer and a printer has both of them. And the computers of today make my Commodore 64 that I had as a kid look like what it was, really. It was a joke. It was a joke. And uh, I don't know how many people are still running Commodore 64s, or if you got really sophisticated. See, I actually was able to sell mine and save up a little more money and buy the advanced Commodore 128D. Right? I don't know if anybody's running stuff like that anymore just for fun or nostalgia or whatever, but that stuff was expensive, especially in 1980s dollars. Today you can get a really good multi-terabyte hard drive, like 8 gig of RAM, you know, DVD burner, you name everything you can possibly cram into a computer, especially like a rebuilt one for under 500 bucks at Tiger Direct. I mean, computers that were more powerful than just about anything. Look what a smartphone does. This is what's happening with these technologies with FarmBot. I want to talk more about FarmBot in a minute, but just overall. So I've talked about autonomous vehicles and uh, vehicles that drive themselves. And what did I see this weekend? I saw a commercial for Mercedes E-Class. And the narrator said something to the effect of, is humanity ready for an autonomous, self-driving vehicle? Well, if not, it's too late. It's already here. And then it went through all of the things that this vehicle does. And it's not quite self-driving yet, but it's basically fixing all the shit that we do wrong or can't do well like preventing uh, accidents and recovery of of, of uh, out-of-control situations and uh, parking and, and stuff. But you get when you listen to what Mercedes is saying, you know what they're really saying. Oh, this bitch could drive itself if the government would let us make it do it right now. That's what they're saying. And you can't – governments cannot hold markets back. They can hold them for a time, but – It's it's again it's a degrees thing right like so people think of like things being held back as an on off switch it's not an on off switch right as we talked about with uh, with type two diabetes last week with people saying you're pre diabetic you're not pre diabetic you're 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 50% diabetic okay it's a degree and so the government can hold back a market but it's still increasing by a few degrees a few degrees and it, eventually it cascades and there's no holding it back. And that's what's going on. And as it goes to the individual level, and people start demanding it, and what does government do in the end? It always capitulates to what people want. I know you don't think that because you want shit like freedom and, you know, to be left alone and not to have your property stolen and stuff like that. But you see, the majority of people, the majority of people actually don't want you to have freedom and want your shit stolen so they can have other shit of their own, whatever it is. Not everybody that wants your shit stolen wants it stolen because... They feel a need for you to get something directly, but they feel a need for, like, let's say, our children to be educated, and therefore it's necessary to steal your stuff, right? So people have different reasons for wanting your stuff stolen, but most people want your stuff stolen. Most people don't want you to have freedom. Most people don't want you to have liberty, right? But when most people want something, generally government capitulates because, in the end, 
you got to keep the slaves happy or they just might turn around and drag the master out in the middle of the field and beat the shit out of them with a bunch of stones. Because here's the thing about having slaves. You have to have more slaves than masters. Well, there's no point. You can't have 50 masters to one slave. That doesn't work. A slave can't keep up. Can't do anything. There's no value to the master. So you have to have like a ratio of 500 slaves to the single master for a slavery system, whether it's classic slavery with chains and whips or modern slavery with economics to function. So when the masses call for it, it's going to happen. And then there's places where it's just not that regulated, like garden bot is what I'm going to call it until it becomes farm bot. So what this thing does is it's basically a CNC machine that's been modified with software. It floats around. It plants seeds. All of the tools are printable with a 3D printer. And open source is why this thing is going to sail, okay? Because anybody thinks, well, it should do this, or it should do that, or why doesn't it do this? Well, either make it do it or shut up. Well, I don't know how. Then shut up and find somebody that can. Well, we need a tool that does this. Well, build one and stick it on the end of it and see if it'll work. Well, I, I, I know what I want, but I can't build one. Okay, then get somebody to design it with a computer and get somebody with a 3D printer to print you one. Oh, and if that's a popular tool, then that person can start selling the shit out of them to anybody that has a farm bot or a garden bot. My my belief in what's holding this thing up right now is it's about twenty nine hundred bucks I think and that's with a twenty percent discount so let's call it a three thousand five hundred dollar piece of equipment is it worth thirty five hundred dollars a year for me for a a piece of equipment to manage a single garden bed even fifty feet long by a couple feet wide three or four feet wide maybe probably not probably not. Is it worth that much for me and maybe a little bit extra for some more rails for that piece of equipment to manage 20 or 30 rows like that in my backyard? You bet it is. You bet it is because now what I've got is an urban farm that runs itself. This is a product that somebody like Curtis Stone could use, except his farm's all broken up in multiple backyards. But even so, if it was... a a $5,000 investment to manage one farm. How many employees can you get for $5,000 a year that work 24-7, 365 on such a small amount of energy that they could be run on solar? And I wouldn't run it on solar. I'm just saying you could. Just think about how little energy something must actually use to be able to do that. I mean, this is the type of thing that eventually is going to be an $800 product. This is going to be a – This is going to. here's what this is going to be. Eventually, it's going to be a $3,000 product, and it's going to work like this. Joe's Automated Gardens is going to come to your house and slap everything together, get a, a profile from you, what vegetables you want, how many a year, what your climate is, all of that shit, and walk away, and you're going to have a system that all you're going to have to do is harvest and refill the little seed hoppers and make sure it's connected to water and electricity. Now, that's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be next year. But it's probably in the next five to ten years. Okay, you want a revolution? You want to See, and this is what people say. But we need people working. We need people. This is not appropriate. This is going to displace workers. But what does everybody in the permaculture world want? What, is, what do all the social justice warriors say that they want? What do all the ecological people say that they want? Local food and a garden in every backyard. Do you know there's a lot of people that don't like gardening? I, I know it's crazy, but they don't. And they get tired of it. And it needs an ongoing maintenance. Do you know that you can garden almost anywhere if somebody was to sit out there 10 hours a day and as soon as a weed comes up, yank it out. As soon as anything needed water, give it water. 
complete oversight and not letting anything get out of hand. Sensors that say, if you could just go stick your finger in the soil and go, ah, oh, we need an iron enrichment here. <laughs> But we can do that with a computer. That's where this is going. And, and this is what I think kind of the next generation is. And remember, I said shut up and don't complain. So I'm not complaining. I just think like the next logical step is I wouldn't want 10 of these bots at three grand a pop, $30,000, managing 10 long rows. Because I think extending it long, easy, easy. You just put more tracks on it, it just goes further, right? There's, there's no restriction to that. If they can build a thing that will let it basically slide from one row to the next, I think that's what you need. Now, I'm sure you could put like a lateral track, but it has to be something that allows space between the rows because you still got to get in there and harvest. This thing doesn't quite do the harvesting for you. That's something you have to do for yourself. But I bet it could be made up with an app that says you currently have the following things that need to be harvested by next week if you want it, if you want it planted. Be like your gardener saying, hey, you got to get this crap out of here if you want me to put the next stuff in. But if you could have one of these things for three grand, okay, and let's say by the time you're you're done adding all the other tracks and stuff, let's say again it's it's a let's say it's ten thousand dollars. So as it scales up, it comes down to about a thousand dollars a row, and you have ten one hundred foot by four foot rows. You're just a a, a, a butt hair under a tenth of an acre. It's like point oh nine one. So add a row. Add a row and figure out how to make it work. Or add your rows a little bit longer, you have a tenth of an acre. Not a tenth of an acre in space, a tenth of an acre in management. If you can have a tenth of an acre managed for a one-time real cost of $10,000 in small maintenance upkeep, because that machine can do all its stuff on one row and just slide over the next row, and there's no reason, and this is a grid, there's no reason that can't happen. You have a tenth acre market garden. With 100% intensive management for $10,000 plus, let's say, building the beds all at another $20,000, you start a 10th acre farm with a full-time employee for a one-time cost of $20,000. Do you get that? And yet, for a couple grand, every yuppie in America can have a little one in their backyard. And which, which comes first and what outproduces the other? In other words, If you get enough little backyards doing this, then the, the market gardener suffers. He doesn't have a job to do it. He has to go find something else to do. If you put enough market gardeners doing it, then the yuppies don't buy it because I'd rather just get the produce that's now more affordable than ever and more available than ever. In the end, it doesn't really matter. What you're going to see is a prevalence of this technology everywhere. So farm bought in itself is interesting, but I, I think what you have to realize is this is one of, and I, I should probably put, For September's voting for Tuesdays, 10 unstoppable trends in the next 10 years. 10 unstoppable trends in the next 10 years. I, that'd probably be a good show. This is one of the unstoppable trends, this aut automation thing. And it's going to roll and roll and roll. And that takes us right into our next subject today. This one comes in for Karim, and it's another trend. Like You'd know right away if I did 10 trends. I'd go short on these two because we talk about it so much. The other trend is homeschooling. It's, it's just not going to stop. This comes from Karim. Karim says, I live in one of the best school districts in Texas. It's government schools, but not the shitty dropout factory type. Yet the number of people that live around me that I see moving the homeschooling model is quite interesting, especially since the vast majority of people who live around me live here because of the public schools around here. 
Chalk this up as another Jack was right, Karim. This is one of those things, like, a lot of the things that I'm right about, I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. I don't, I, I, guys, I, I have predicted so many things over eight years, and I get an email from somebody confirming it or showing it, continuing, says Jack was right. And the first thing I think is, ah, oh, damn it. I, I really do. This one, I'm, I'm, I, I am in love with being right about. So, like, I could have some perception bias, no doubt. Because I want this to be true. Most of the stuff I predict, I don't want to be true. But it's a logical thing. Now, here's the thing. I've noticed this, too. When I first talk, started talking about homeschooling at all, it was about a year into the show. I started mentioning it here and there. And my assessment, uh, and it wasn't good or bad. It was just the demographic. And understand, you're not putting someone down by describing their demographic. You're not insulting to say some, you're not, it's not insulting to say this demographic is low income, or this demographic is high income, or this demographic is middle income, or this demographic is white, or black, or male, or female. It's a statement of fact. It's not a judgment. So don't take it the wrong way if this applies to you, because it kind of applies to me too, especially a number of years ago before I got professionally where I, I, I ended up in, in the world. The majority of people that I saw homeschooling say 10, 15 years ago, were mostly rural, mostly Christian, and I don't just mean that was their religion. I'm looking for a way to say this without upsetting anybody, but let's call it Southern Baptist Extreme Christian, if that makes sense. And again, I don't want it to offend anybody. I don't even know the right words for it. I'm saying there are people that distrust the government because of their church. Okay, Not all of them, but a lot of them. Not distrust the government because government didn't earn their trust, but like whatever the church said was more true than what what anybody else said outside the church. I mean, we're talking about extreme levels of belief in creation, literalist Christian. Maybe that's the right way. So a person that interprets the Bible 100% Bible 100% literally was not the you know not a, maybe not 100%, but high percentage um, income levels low. To, 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 to like middle, middle class. Okay. Um, mostly rural. Um, mostly in school districts that weren't the worst, but they sure as hell weren't the best. That's, that's what I've noticed in, 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 up till very, very recently. What I'm noticing now is exactly what Karim said. Upwardly mobile parents, upper wealthy, uh, upper well, you know, kind of upper middle class. To wealthy, to affluent, right? Not uber wealthy, not super rich. They have private schools they just pay for, right? But kind of this, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the family where mom drives a Lexus and dad drives a Mercedes and they're, they're not brand new every year, but they probably pick up a new lease every three to four years on them. Um, and they're not, they're not broke with debt. They manage their finances well. They live in houses that, in Texas anyway, are $400,000 houses. To give you a geographic you know, adjustment, for many of you in places like New York, uh, Chicago, uh, California, that's a, that's a $800,000 house there. All right? That's what I'm seeing the largest piece of growth in the homeschool market in. So what that has done now is it spanned kind of the, the middle class all the way to the upper middle class and the lower middle class to the, the, the downright poor, but it's still mostly white people, in my experience. Now, if you have anything, 
Again, I'm not insulting anybody by defining a demographic. It's not my intention anyway. Um, but that's what I see. I have not met many parents who are black or Hispanic or Asian doing homeschooling. And the place that I see almost no homeschooling going on is parents of children that would be in inner city schools, which is where you would think, like, the really the bottom of the barrel, like Dallas School District, in, in inner city Dallas, their, their dropout rate is over 50%. You would think if there's anywhere that parents are homeschooling, it would be in those school districts. But people that live in those lower end school districts don't do it yet. Okay? What does that tell us? That there's a trend. And it will permeate into there. It, it absolutely will. It, it will in time. But it's, it's right now becoming more of an upwardly mobile thing. And if you think about it, people in the upwardly mobile demographic, many of them are self-employed. And this gives them a great deal of flexibility where even if mom and dad both work, maybe one works from home. And as long as you get the kid up to the point where he can basically do his work on his own, and you only give him a couple hours of guidance a day, you can make that work if you're not sitting there over their back. So we're seeing everything from the people that live in a tiny house on a homestead with two kids that just don't want to deal with the government all the way to people that are you know making several hundred thousand dollars a year or more but don't want to spend the money on private school and don't want their kids in public education. As you see that demographic start to move out into what we call minorities, that's when it'll reach kind of this unstoppable momentum. And part of why the opponents of it are so upset about it is that this upwardly mobile demographic is beginning to leave. Because if those students leave, you would think, well, they would be happy because, well, the state doesn't have to spend the money on them. They could reallocate that money to other schools. If government was logical, sure. But what they're actually afraid of is, over time, 80 or 90% of the best of the best as far as income level, right, will leave. Will leave. And this will make it very difficult to justify to these people taking their money, and they pay the most property taxes. And it'll also make it harder to keep teachers employed, and it'll create a downward spiral of the whole system. Where the truth is, if government were logical and just isn't, the more that leave, the better for those left behind. The more, even if you had 80% leave and lost 40% of the tax revenue, you'd still be ahead by 40%, actually by 50%. But government doesn't see things that way, and status don't see things that way, and people in the status systems, even if they're not, you know, ardent status themselves, can't see beyond that. You can't explain this to a teacher, you can't explain this to a principal. All they know is if that desk isn't full, I don't get that money this quarter. And it goes to somebody else. They, they, they don't understand this because the system's designed to not let them understand it. But this trend is going to continue. And when you start seeing people pulling their kids out of school districts, not because the school district's a poor school district, but because they just know the model works better. Even with the best school district, the model works better. The public's got it figured out, folks. And I'd like to see an in-depth study done of what the logarithmic growth of homeschooling is 
from let's say 1985 to 2015 and what the projections based on that are from 2015 to 2025. I'll bet you someone's in government has done it already and they didn't like it so they didn't tell you what they did. You know, they spent your tax money to do the study and then didn't release the information. I'm telling you, they know. They know very well what's coming. A mass exodus from government schools and a mass exodus from traditional um, college education as well. I'm telling you right now. Next one is from Tracy. Tracy says, a week or so ago you responded to, I think it was a feedback question, about staying cool during a power outage. You mentioned window room AC units, running them from a generator, etc. I wanted to add function stacking type of thought to that. Melissa and I live right around the corner from Mike and Sue Laprise. They have a large above-ground pool. They use it for cooling off during the day as they're working in the yard garden, etc. In addition to cooling, it's about 20,000 gallons of emergency water supply. They've never had to use it for that, but it's there if they need it. And it's more useful in the meantime than a storage tank. Yes, there's evaporation, but it's worth the trade-off. They've inspired us to do the same thing. Not quite there yet. Need to sell our other house first. But we do have one of those El Cheapo Quick Set pools, 40 bucks at a local grocery store. In the interim, it works just fine for cooling off during the day in hot South Texas summer days. In fact, yesterday I sat in the pool for a few minutes, got out and sat on the covered porch. Slight breeze actually gave me all 300 pounds of me a chill on a 100-degree day, Tracy. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a pool. We have a 24-foot, 5-foot deep, standard size above-ground pool, and we believe you buy the best you can afford. So with above-ground pools, they're not that expensive. So I'm going to say this right now. If you go into a pool store and they say, we can put you in a 24-inch round pool for $1,500 or for $3,000, find the extra $1,500. I've, I've owned four above-ground pools now. Three are exactly what I said. We bought the best-made pool we could get our hands on. One was a cheap aluminum you know, fixture, so the, the size is always aluminum. But the railing, uh, the, the caps, all of that stuff can be really heavy-duty. Uh, I guess it's nylon uh, or some sort of plastic, or it can be aluminum. The aluminum gets very hot, and you want the widest rails you can get. And I can tell you that we were much more happy with the three pools we bought than the one that was already there when we moved in. On the concept of cooling off with pools, it does help. I will say this to anybody that's thinking, man, a great big old cool pool sounds great. Cool is in cool temperatures. Above ground pools in states like Texas, that water's like bath water this time of year. Still getting in and getting out, man, it does drop the core temperature. Doesn't help you when you got work to do in the house, like produce a podcast, you know. Um, but it is very useful. And I find myself often when I'm out working and I'm just like, oh man, it's hot. I just bloosh. Just a couple minutes and get out. And the other thing I have is I have a shower, and this is an important thing, an outdoor shower, just a simple one. Um, you attach a garden hose to it, and uh, if you're going to have an above-ground pool, or any pool, and you're going to think about it like this, I really recommend setting up some sort of outdoor shower. Um, to If you're dirty at all, if you've used any kind of lotion, suntan oil, anything like that to rinse off first before you get in the pool, that'll see if you don't need a pool, though. That'll really cool you off. Hose water is cold, right? Whether it's coming from the grid or coming from your well, that's cold water. And uh, just that is so valuable. When Josiah was here as my intern, Josiah Wallingford, for those that haven't been around a long time, uh, is now as one of our partners in Permethos, uh, some of the first work I gave him was like building a platform for a water catchment tank. And uh, he videoed it all, and he ran it in like high speed, the construction of the, the platform. And about, you know, you see them like multiple times just run under our shower and just cool off because it's so hot out. And uh, so those work too. Any way you can get in the water. Um, 
a lot of southern traditions around, you know, building homesteads near creeks or what have you. So just you can go in the water and cool off in the summer. I mean, remember, air conditioning is, what, 100 years old-ish, 110 years old, something like that. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's not been around forever. Modern air conditioning is a relatively new phenomenon. And air conditioning, the way we know it, where almost every home has it, that's a very new thing. That's like 1950s and forward, really. If you look at the population of the southern states, they expand with the expansion of central air. They just do. Um, in many states today, still people don't use much air conditioning at all. Uh, they just tough it out through the heat of summer. I think it's crazy, but they do it. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather's house, it's now my father's house, I think it was about the middle 80s that they got an air conditioner. As far as I know, my dad still run that same damn air conditioner because the man is so tight. He could rub, rub two nickels together and make a dime out of them. That's how tight this, this, this guy is, right? Uh, so if that thing's still working, he's still using it because by the, you know, 90s, it was, I know when I went home from the army in 93, they were still using it. They got this in the early 80s and it's just a big old window unit. And about the time that you would get to the point where you really would be inside sweating, it would be about June there, they put it in a window in the living room. And we had like a living room and like a, like a second living room with the stairs that went upstairs and a bedroom that was my grandmother's bedroom. And then a kitchen. And then upstairs went to the bedrooms upstairs. And we'd, she'd, my grandmother closed the bedroom door to her bedroom. And we put a curtain up in the doorway between the kitchen and the second living room. So it's basically the main living room and what they call the parlor or the sitting room. So for those of you that aren't from the Northeast, a sitting room or a parlor in somebody's house is like a living room without a television. That was the big difference. And it was where company came over, you sit and talk. And that way, if other people were in watching TV, there was a separation. And a lot of the old houses had things like that for a totally different reason that I won't get into culturally, by the way, today. But that that's what we had. And that was it for the house, which meant when I slept upstairs, there was no air conditioning at night. We had a big window fan. And that was it for the three rooms upstairs. You opened all the doors and the windows and blew the fan through. And uh, so, I mean, northern states have been able to deal with this heat for a lot longer, and the population shows it alone. But pools are a great idea, and I've always seen this, the, the advantage also is the reserve water. Now, here's what's interesting. How many people don't even understand that? Many, many years ago, I mean, I was doing a show maybe a year, year and a half. I was interviewed in a feature on survivalism uh, by Fort Worth Star-Telegram. It was one of the first big pieces of media coverage we ever got from Survival Podcast. A reporter came out to my house. She wanted to take pictures of, like, stacks and stacks of MREs. And I'm like, we don't do that here. And by the way, we have a bug-out location, so most of our stuff is staged there and explained everything. And then she's like, well, you know, explain what you do have. And we did. And I said, the pool is a source of water. And I think we had a 28. We had like the jumbo round pool. We spent the extra money because we had the space for it. We got the bigger above round pool. And that was holding like 28,000 gallons or something like that. She And I said, yeah, we could use that water. You have to you know, filter it or, or what have you. But you can still use it to drink. You can certainly use it for bathing. You can certainly use it. It's not the best, but for some irrigation, whatever. But you know, at least for bathing and for cooking, you could use this water. She couldn't even get her head around the fact that you could use pool water even if you filtered it, even if you processed it in some way, in that manner. Like once it was pool water, it was forever pool water, and it could never go back. It's interesting how people don't think anymore. 
Next up, I have an after-action review from um, James, who was in Canada during this huge fire up there. Let me read his email to you. Uh, subject, disaster recovery from the perspective of being prepared to come back to your home after having to bug out or forced evacuation. Background. In the beginning of May, I emailed concerning my, an evacuation in my hometown, warning to the listeners. The area I live in was threatened by a forest fire. A section was evacuated on Sunday, returned home on Monday, then a mandatory evacuation for the entire town on Tuesday, May the 3rd. 80,000 to 90,000 evacuated. The evacuation lasted from May 3rd to approximately June 1st. That's almost a full month, guys. What is that, 27, 28 days? Four different areas in the city burnt, resulting in 2,300 structures, including homes and businesses, destroyed. There are multiple realities that need to be faced that are universal regardless of the type of disaster. Insurance, physical structures, job loss, physical properties, mental stress, damage to garden and soil projects. I've run into multiple people who were in the prepper mindset who were dealing with these issues. Some in the affected areas had independent soil analysis that strongly suggested they pull up the top three feet of soil and retest. These are people whose homes are not damaged beyond smoke, but because they live in a heavily damaged area, they cannot return home until the municipality finally figures out how to remediate the area and avoid liability for long-term illness associated with the guys who would move back home, not do shit, and get toxic exposure left to their own devices. As you pointed out, shelter in place or bugging in isn't always a viable solution, and many of us simply aren't prepared for the aftermath. Thanks for reading this far. I really understand how difficult that is with everything you have on the go. I've been trying to get caught up with the shows. I missed getting my life back in order. I missed getting my life back in order. The shows helped me regain a bit more normalcy that's been missing. I've included a few aftermath pictures I've taken as well, one of which remains of a fire safe. Don't trust them. I assisted in shifting in some of the homes, and out of dozens or so we searched, maybe four or five had recoverable context. Keep up the good work, James. Um, yeah, I mean, I had this debate when Stephen Harris first started coming on the show with him all the time. Why would you bug out, he used to say. Why would you bug out? And it didn't take long, because Steve's a logical guy, for me to say, because sometimes you can't bug in. Because there's a fire, because there's a storm, because there's a flood, because there's a credible threat of terrorism, because there's an active threat of terrorism, because there's been a meltdown of a nuclear plant, because uh, something's blown up. I mean, there's all types of things that would make us bug out. It doesn't have to be the blue helmets to make us bug out. We're not going to have to be heading up for a red dawn fight with the blue helmets to, to, to have to bug out. It's an interesting thing, though, to think about the concept of being told to remove three feet of your soil. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd have to say, okay, I have four inches in, in rock. And I think that might be an overreaction. And I think what you're seeing here is an overreaction because no one wants to be liable for any of this stuff. But there's a difference between a forest burning and a town burning. I think in your home alone, how many different things maybe aren't directly toxic, but if they were set aflame and burned, might create toxins. Now think about all your neighbor's houses. Now think about your town and the stores that are in them and the stuff that's in the stores. And you think my house is pretty clean. What about your garage? You got any pans of, you know, how much paint and other oils and things do you have out there? What, what real damage could be done? It's a scary prospect and it's a reality. And that's why we have to plan for resiliency in more than just one option. Two is one and one is none. It does not just apply to stuff. It also applies to plans. Two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is more, 
five keeps you alive. I, I really believe that you should try to have about five different options in any individual situation. It doesn't mean you need to go out and spend a fortune preparing for five different options. Sometimes the mental game is the most important. Just knowing what you would do if you had to. Being able to think that way. So that when you get into the process, you're able to go, oh yeah, I wargame this in my head. This is the path. Of and it probably won't survive contact with the enemy. No battle plan does. But at least you're in motion then. Because what we just talk about. A newspaper reporter trying very hard to understand a difficult subject, coming at it with a hype angle, who ended up with a very level-headed article that she did in the end. Great video she did of me, by the way, uh, that they put up on the Fort Worth Star website. Couldn't get her head around the fact that you could even use the water in the pool. Even for things like, I remember talking to her and going, well, you do understand that you, if, as long as, if the water was off, but the sewer wasn't backed up, you could flush a toilet with that water, don't you? And I could see in her head, she didn't get it. I took her into the bathroom and I pulled the tank off the bottom of the to back of the toilet. You see that water? That water goes in there. That makes that water go down the drain. And then new water fills it up. You can either just dump water right in the bowl and it'll make the toilet flush. Or you can just fill the back tank with water with a bucket and you can use the flush as needed so it's ready to go next time. And her face was blank. This lady wasn't stupid. She just never thought about it before. As soon as I explained it, the face went from blank to wow. Well, that makes perfect sense. Okay, but if you never thought about it, you have people sitting you know, with bags of shit in their garage trying to figure out how to get rid of it in a disaster because they can't flush a toilet and either they or a neighbor has a pool. Again, as long as the, as long as the sewer is running, there's times when that doesn't work either. But we have to think in advance. And isn't it interesting that this town burned, displaced 80 to 90,000 people? And we heard some media coverage about it while it was burning and people were evacuating. But 80 to 90,000 people in a town lost 2,300 structures. People are suffering. You hear nothing about this in the mainstream media. Nothing. Instead, you know what we hear. I won't even go into it. Let's take another one. Um... You know, I had made a decision this week that I wasn't going to have any kind of a cop rant. And I, I still think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my word on that to myself. It was made in my head. And uh, I, I went through uh, submitted story after submitted story of law enforcement abuse and just went, nope, 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 talked about that enough. Then I got to this one, and it's short. I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to tell you something that you cops need to start thinking about and you need to start self-policing. Uh, that has nothing to do with people in, in, in a direct way. Police in Wynwood, Oklahoma, arrived at a home of the Malones with a warrant for someone who had lived in the rental residence 10 years earlier, according to local TV station Fox 25. Okay, that's a big problem by itself, guys. It really is. Wait do you hear how they justify it. While there, an unidentified police officer took what Fox 25 described as a high-powered rifle from his vehicle and shot Opie, described as a bulldog-pitbull mix, multiple times, including at least twice in front of children who were having a birthday party, according to Vicki Malone, the mother of the mother, uh, the mother. Police insist the dog came around the house to menace police, okay? But Fox 25 reports that obtained video that showed the dog lying on the ground with a bullet wound to its head near the fence, not near the house, as the police insisted. The police chief also admitted to Fox 25 they knew the Malones were the most recent residents and that a number of people had moved in and out of the house, but said Ken Moore, 
but said Kenmore police had to start somewhere. The warrant gave them authority to enter the Malone property without their permission. For her part, Vicki Malone says she never saw any warrant. Eli, the five-year-old whose birthday party police crashed to shoot and kill his dog, told Facts 25 he was sad the police did not apologize for killing his dog. Feel good about yourselves, guys? Can't even apologize? You know why they won't apologize? It's admitting guilt. Ugh. I'm not going to rant. I'm not gonna, I want to. The anger's building up. I'm looking at this little kid hug his dog, and I want to snap a gasket, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to keep my word to myself and to you. But there is a rash of this going on. And let me tell you, it is way worse than you think it is. Because most of these incidences of cops shooting dogs are not reported. And it's gotten to be that if a dog is in the way, a cop just shoots it. Because they know they're going to get away with it. Because they know they're going to get away with it. Not going to rant. I'm not going to snap a gasket. <sighs> if you have to gain entry now... Because something serious is going to happen, like somebody's going to die, somebody that's injured is going to not get care, a person who's murdered someone is going to get away, something like that, and you attempt entry and a dog comes at you and you're a cop and you shoot that dog, I, I totally get it. I, I totally get it. I still think there's a lot of times when it shouldn't happen because you shouldn't be doing what you're doing in the first place, but I get it. If you want to serve a warrant to check out a house because you've got to start somewhere... Calm. You've got to start somewhere. And you know the people that are living there aren't even the people you're looking for. Then you can do something as simple as make a phone call. Ma'am, I'm sorry, we, we, we need to check your, your, your rental home out. I know it's not yours. I know you don't own it. Um, but we're here, and we need entry, and your dog's here. Not shoot the dog in front of children. Mm. Mm. And let me tell you what. I know three people that I've met face-to-face -face who've had dogs shot by the police for no damn reason at all. Okay, it's bad enough that, you, that we have videos of cops ignoring their oath. It's bad enough that we have cops shooting people when we look at the situation and go, doesn't look like qualified for lethal, lethal force, like a guy laying on the ground trying to get an autistic man to stop playing with a truck and he gets shot in the leg and the cop says, I don't know why I shot you when he's asked why he shot him. Okay, um, It's bad enough. But the incidences of, of cops shooting people in what looks like unjustified circumstances. Many times, the unjustified circumstances turn out to be justified. And many times, we're not sure, and many times, it looks like the cop deserves to go to prison. But the total number is actually relatively low. It really is. But we see a lot of abuses by police in the way they are dealing with people. And we see a lot, to be fair, a lot of cops being really, really courteous and beyond the courteousness I could extend So I'll give you props for that. But what we're hearing from police right now is we want your support and we want the public's trust. If you make it a common practice to shoot a dog because it's in the way, and that's what some of you guys are doing, don't say you're not. I've seen videos of cops, of people saying, well, what about the dog? I'm just going to shoot the dog. And the dog, cops walk, shoots the dog. No need to. This is because of the militarization of our police. It really is. And these guys are amped up, and they want to shoot something. And when they get the opportunity, they're taking the opportunity. I'm not saying all cops are doing it. I'm saying a segment of you. Okay. If you shoot a kid's dog at a birthday party in front of kids, you don't need to be a cop. You don't have the mental capacity to be a police officer. And uh, 
you better think about this, cops. I want you to really think about this because there are people that would never harm a police officer because they're a police officer. But anybody, cop or otherwise, who unnecessarily killed one of their animals, they would be very upset with, and they might take the law into their own hands, regardless of whether the person's a police officer or not. And they're not going to go out and just start randomly shooting police officers, but the guy that pulled the trigger and killed their dog unnecessarily, they might have it in for that person for a very long time. And someday there might be a very unfortunate consequence over the life of a dog. Because there are people, I'm just saying, they view their dogs as family. They really do. And most people who are affected by this, if they were given the opportunity, would have been more than, more than, more than willing to cooperate with law enforcement and seclude the dog and allow law enforcement to do its job. And, and my big problem with this is we have so many instances where law enforcement is not allowing that opportunity. If you're kicking in a, a, a house where people are trading sex slaves or something like that and have you know human trafficking and a dog comes out and you shoot it, I get it. I get it. But if you have a house surrounded, no one's going anywhere. Make a phone call. And if you're ever an officer and you're ever in a situation where you see this about to happen and you don't do something, you are as bad as the person that pulls the trigger. You're worse. You're worse. You're actually worse. Because you knew better. And you didn't stop it. And we're going to go on to my final segment before I lose my cool. Because if you can't tell, this kind of shit really pisses me off. But cops, if you want the public support, among so many other things you got to do, this shooting dogs, unquestioning shooting of dogs, has got to stop. And if I'm telling you, there's nothing people love more, aside from their kids and family, than their dogs. And every time one of your idiot brother officers does this, it hurts that relationship that you guys claim you're looking to restore. I hope you're sincere about wanting to restore it. I'm telling you, it's one of the many things you got to do. This next one from Karen comes from Karen, and it says... Um, Jack, how do you distinguish prepping from hoarding? Do you have any tips and suggestions on staying organized and focused while prepping? Is there a balancing act between decluttering and preparedness? There's definitely a balancing act. I have a lot of clutter and a lot of disorganization, but it's not because of hoarding and it's not even because of prepping. It's because I'm a disorganized person. I don't excel at organization. My garage, anybody who's been here and seen my garage and go, geez, this guy has everything and he doesn't know where anything is. Um, let's start out with the first thing. Is there a difference between prepping and hoarding? Yes, yes. Preparedness is acquiring the things that you might need tomorrow before you need them. That's the most basic definition. Okay? And acquiring them sufficiently so that if your ability to acquire more is disrupted for a while, you still have enough to get by until you can get more. That's preparedness. Okay? Hoarding is freaking out like a moron and jamming every bit of resource and space you have and money you have with buying a whole bunch of shit for when the zombies come. That's that's hoarding. That's one type of hoarding. That's that's preemptive hoarding. And then there's the majority of what real hoarding ends up being. Okay. Real hoarding usually happens to people that aren't prepared. So what I mean by that is you know when the snow comes and they didn't expect snow and you like go to the grocery store and like the shelves are empty? That is hoarding. 
That is people going out and getting as much as they can, as fast as they can, because they're afraid, and they take more than they're going to need, because for, for, for God's sakes, right? It, it's like it's going to be a, a, you know, a, a, a one-day snowstorm in Texas. You're going to be in the house for it. You don't need 57 loaves of bread. You really don't. You don't need five gallons of milk. Just relax. You know, and guys, you don't need 15 cases of beer. If you think you need 15 cases of beer, get it in advance. So that's the big difference is when you're a hoarder as a prepper, you're buying things and putting them away that you will never use or never divest of responsibly. So I am a believer in some long-term food storage. Your freeze-dried stuff, your mountain house, that stuff. Okay. The, the right way to handle that, though, is after a certain amount of time, maybe at its half-life or thereafter, to either start using it and replacing it or do a big cookout for the homeless or donate it to a shelter because it's, it's not expired. Make use of it. But the majority of what we do is we eat what we store and store what we eat. Or with batteries. We store the types of batteries that we use. And we never would store more than we could use over their life cycle. So good alkaline batteries are good for about 10 years. So if you have more than a 10-year supply on hand at regular usage, you're hoarding. Because you'll never get them used before they begin to degrade. It's that simple. You know? And if you take that approach, you start to question your inventories. And you start to scale some up and some down. And then it makes a lot more sense. I would tell you that the average person would be fine with 60 days of sustainability. Forget Doomsday Preppers. Forget Alex Jones. Forget all the crap. And with no specialty products whatsoever, you can get to 60 days of sustainability. If you have enough fuel to keep yourself cool or hot for 60 days, if you have enough to cook, to provide water for yourself, not necessarily have the water, but have the means of acquiring it, you have a food, for, for 30 to 60 days, you'll get through just about anything that you really need to get through other than the end of the world as we know it. And in that case, the concept of hiding in place and not being seen or bugging out and not being part of a rebuilding with others is frankly preposterous. It's ridiculous. If we ever get into that situation, you're going to have to create alliances with others as quickly as possible. And with that, we'll go into actually, I said before, but my last segment. So here's our last one today. Um, Can you talk about being prepared for a possible terrorist attack as well as large natural disasters? I listened to your podcast and you talked about having a bug out kit, a blackout kit ready to go. And I got me thinking about this. I have a bob and one for my wife and the dogs, but what about bugging in on the down low? I don't want to advertise that I have food, water, power, guns, etc. I love the show so far, Jack. I just found it a couple weeks ago. If you've already put out a show about this, can you send me a show number or I'll look it up? Thanks for everything. By the way, run for president. I barely know you, but I would vote for you over these clouds running. Well, remember, if I ever did run for president this term, and I, I don't know if I'm going to, my uh, slogan would be, don't vote for me, because. And it would just really be a PR thing on YouTube. And I, I still kick the idea around, but I'm like, do I really have that the time in my life to do one more thing every day? And I don't know that I do. I'm... Working hard to reorganize a lot of things now so I can, you know, enjoy the fact that I work for myself like I was at one time and before I got into so many other things as a serial entrepreneur. So I, I don't know. But um, on this topic, 
there's fear here, and we have to balance fear with reality. There is some reality. I, I, I think I put on the, the show notes say the good, the bad, and the tin hat uh, with bugging it as a gray man. So you have to think about this. If you bugged in, okay, so you're going to stay home for whatever reason, that means that the place you are is safer than leaving. It has to mean that. That's the reason you bug in. So if there is something going on and you there's someplace safer than where you are and you can get there, you go there because it's just common damn sense. In other words, natural disaster. There's a fire. It's going to burn your house down like the AAR we had. They tell you to get out. You should have left before they told you to if you're really prepared because fire doesn't give a shit what you think. It burns your ass dead. Okay? So you leave. So what that means is that there is a relative level of safety. It might not be comfort, you know, or comfort compared to normal, and, and resources may be somewhat depleted and all, but there's a relative level of safety. And unless you're talking global catastrophe, most people that are in a situation where they're cut off from supplies, if they can leave, They're going to leave. So it goes from being safety that makes them leave to, you know, over at my brother-in-law's house three towns over, they don't have this problem, so they go there. Okay? So the people that, that bug in with you, that stay behind with you, generally have basic comforts. And I've found that if you actually know your neighbors in a situation like this, instead of worrying about, oh, I got to hold all this and hide it, you end up working together with them. Um. When we lived in Arkansas, I gave gasoline to my neighbors during a, uh, an ice age, an ice age, an ice, an ice storm, because they went uh, five days before anybody could go get fuel, and I had plenty of gas. House was like, and I heard that they they had a, a, a stove. They were that they were they were running off propane that they were then opening to let heat into the house, but they had a generator, but they were out of gas. I gave them two get two cans of gas. So that they will be able to get down a mountain or here. What do I owe you for? You don't owe me nothing. Okay, here's why you have to be this way. Let's imagine that this is a little bit bigger and a little bit longer, and you're going to get to the point where people do start trying to scavenge and steal and rob and, and, and what have you, and shake people down. You've got a couple neighbors. You've helped them out where you can. You don't get stupid and give away everything so that you become in need. Remember, you can only help people to the level of your surplus. Right? That's it. Once you help beyond your surplus, you become needy and dependent on somebody else. You become a drain, not an asset. But you've done that, and you've, you've stayed in contact with everybody. And something comes along like that, and you say, hey, here it comes. Let's, let's take care of this together. They're going to help you. Now, what if you're the asshole that doesn't want to help anybody, and people come, and they can fend them off because they've got more than one or two people, and then they come to your house? Do you think they're, you know, are they obligated to look after you now? This whole download thing. Right there's a diff now there is a difference here. What can I do to help you? Right, not hey, guess what? My whole garage, my whole my whole basement is full of food. I got 60 days worth of food. You don't need to be telling people stuff like that. But helping people get by for a couple days here and there, you need to be doing stuff like that. You need to be if you're a prepper, you need to be a coordinator and a leader in your neighborhood, not a hider, not a hider. This concept comes from too much TV, too much, too much fiction books, too much hype, too much Hollywood. This is not how people have ever been able to survive in a real scenario. 
Uh, I had a guy named Selko on from Shit at the Fan School, right? This guy went through the Balkan Wars in Bosnia. And he said, once that thing started, you found other people and you hooked up with them really quick or you didn't make it. This isolationist attitude. Because here's the reality. I don't care how down low you are. I don't give a damn how down low you are with it. How gray man you are with it. If you're there and you're existing and it's been a few weeks, well, people know you have to have something if you're there. Now, we can do things to not be stupid. So there's a, there's a balance between, like, gray man, which is smart, and tin hat, which is, woo, and then just advertising, which is stupid. So here's what I mean. It's a good idea to not run your generator at night. It really is. And unless you're somewhere where it doesn't matter. When we were in Arkansas, we ran our generator at night. We're in the middle of nowhere. We had five neighbors. And it wasn't like the whole state was without power. We were pretty much the people that were screwed up our way. And we knew our other neighbors. And, and people knew if you go up that road. I mean, anybody that visited me up there, you're listening now, you know. You, people said every time. I, I came off the blacktop and I heard banjo music. Some of you know where that's from. Some of you are too young, right? I mean, that was the kind of place where people just did not mess around out there. But if you live in a regular neighborhood and there's looting and stuff going on, and you have a generator sitting at night, no, no, no. We run our generator during the day. We top off batteries. We top off all rechargeable devices, etc. We shut her down as, dawn, as dusk comes. And we run silent and deep at night with battery backup and things like that. Because that way we're not, like, because you, during the day people are out, people are doing things, people are trying to pick up the mess, whatever it is. But at night everybody's asleep and that, that generator is like a boop, boop, like the sound from a submarine, boop, boop, right? Just a beacon for, for any criminal that's looking to steal shit. So yeah, you, there's a balance there. But this fear, I mean, when I started this show, I can't tell you how many people are like, this guy's stupid. Everybody knows he's a prepper now. When the shit hits the fan and the world comes to an end, everybody's going to go to his house. Really? Really? <laughs> you know, you, you, you got to think a little bit further than that. You really do. Everybody, if you get to the level you're talking about, everybody is a target to those who target anybody. Everybody. You have resources because you're alive. Now, you could do what no, Joe Nobody says and kind of spray paint plywood and put it up like your house is burned out and shit like that, if you want to. But here's the truth. If I'm in a situation where I am in scavenge mode, and because I have to be, because whatever happened, I've got to be, the burnout house is the one I'm going to. I'm going there first. I don't expect anybody to be there. At least I have shelter. Maybe I can scavenge other resources. Maybe you can just give me shelter for a night. Maybe I can figure things out. Even if I'm a scumbag and I'm going to shoot you and take your shit, if there's a burnout house next to yours, I'm going to move in there first, set up a base of operations. Then I can case your place and steal your shit, you see? So making your house look abandoned actually is the best way to get people to go into your house. And you know who agrees with me 100% on that? Fernando Aguirre, Fairfowl. His basic thing is when you have an area in chaos, you want your house to look like a Christmas tree. You want people to think there's a hundred people in there waiting to kill them if they come in there. Because if it looks abandoned, they're going to go in, if it's not abandoned, maybe maybe it's just the person bugged out. Right? Because they had an evacuation order or something. And I'm just going in through stealing shit. I'm looking for the empty houses to go in. you got to think like your adversary. The problem is we all think like ourselves. We all think, be prepared and get what you need and put it in place. 
right? That's what we should be thinking anyway. So we think, okay, if I didn't have ethics and morals and I didn't have what I need, I would be thinking the same way. And I would look for people that had stuff to steal it from, right? Where what the criminal element generally says, low-hanging fruit, easiest, high-reward, low-risk ratio. That's what the criminal element says. That's what they're looking for. So don't overthink this. But don't don't put a sign on your door that says, I stockpile six months worth of food. That's about as dumb as putting a sign on your freaking front lawn that says, I believe in no guns. Because that says to the criminals to drive by your house, hey, this guy won't shoot you. He doesn't even have a gun. You know? The big thing to remember is that we all have limits to how much we can do and how much we can worry about. We really do. And if, if you ever think that, like, Jack doesn't seem to put much emphasis on the massive disaster, that's because somebody's going to have minor to mid-size to regional-level disasters every day of the year. And that's what's most likely to happen to you. It all goes back to the fundamentals that I've taught from the very beginning. Impact scale, right, and disaster probability. The greater the number of people impacted by a disaster, then the lower the probability that you'll experience it. With one little aberration, right, and that is something like economic collapse, economic, uh, not really collapse, the, the ones that people are waiting for where the cities are going to burn and uh, there's going to be biker gangs running around shooting people and uh, eating babies and shit like that. Not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like akin to what happened in 2008 and 2009. Well, that affected 9 million people lost jobs. You know, there was trillions of dollars lost to the stock market like that. That hit, a, and that hit everybody. You know, if you had a 401k and you didn't listen to me, that hit you. So, but that's still an individual level disaster mostly. We had rising crime rates and stuff like that, but there wasn't, it wasn't like there were, there were cities burning because of the recession, right? It wasn't like the people that got laid off immediately went over to their neighbors and like conked them in the head with a freaking uh, dumbbell and stole all the shit out of the refrigerator and went, oh, I know this guy's a prepper, I'm going to go steal his shit. That's not how it worked. It just didn't, because it's not how it ever works. So we have to focus on being 100% prepared for the things that are likely to happen before we even worry about it. And I always find the people that are most worried about the super shit hit the fan, they're not prepared to go without power for a week. Right? They're not prepared to go without power for a week and being able to drive 20 miles and still get stuff. Let alone be able you know, to, to have what we had here a couple years ago. We, we did not lose power. We lost it a little bit here and there, but we didn't really lose it. We had five days where it was comp you, you could leave if you wanted to. No one prevented you. It was completely unsafe to leave. The roads were an ice rink for five straight days. Okay? Some of you saw my Duck Chronicles videos from that time. My backyard was an ice rink. We had four inches of ice. There are people that are worried about the Alex Jones FEMA camps bugging in on the down low and their neighbors stealing their beef jerky, right? But they would not make it comfortably for four or five days stuck at home, even with power. Now, you got to ask yourself, are the priorities out of whack? And if you're an honest, logical person, you say yes. Here's my feeling, though. Again, this is my honest feeling about, well, what if, Jack? What if the really big one hits? Okay, you're not going to be the gray man. You're not going to be able to just go about your happy-go-lucky way for a year with all your groceries sitting in your basement and be left alone. 
you're going to have to take a proactive approach. You're going to have to reach out to people. You're going to have to help people consolidate resources. You're going to have to be a leader. You're going to have to take that role if you're going to make it, or you have to find someone else that does and follow them. You can't get through something like that alone. That requires a rebuilding. And rebuilding a society requires a society. And that's just a fundamental reality. With that, uh, let's close up. Remember, if you like the work we do and you want to support our work, you can just join the Member Support Brigade. That brigade That's the easiest way to support our show. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. If you do that, you'll get discounts to over 60 different companies that you're probably buying the stuff that they, they, they produce already anyway. And that discount will more than pay for your membership. So you get to support the show and get your money back. And you'll get a lot of other great benefits. How about $175, $185 bucks worth of eBooks the day you join? On day one for free, you download them, keep them forever. Some great video content, some other cool stuff. Check out the MSB if you haven't before. Remember, 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month. And remember also, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders all qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Put TSPC, uh, TSPC service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get the instructions back to you on how to get that discount. And I really appreciate you guys that support me through the Member Support Brigade. You are the guys that have made the show possible. Without MSB members, TSP would not be eight years old. We would not have you know, over 1,800 episodes produced. We would not have changed thousands of lives. We would not have done the good work that we've done. Um, couldn't happen without you. You guys are the number one way that this show is sustained. And thank you to everyone that's ever been a member. And if you like the show and you're thinking about becoming a member, that's the reason to do it. Because it makes the show possible. And because you get your money back. This is not PBS. It's not a donation. It's not a tithe to a church. It's not a charity. It's a business. I run a value-for-value value product, and I appreciate you as my customer when you exchange value for value with me. The other thing you can do is if you shop on Amazon and you like this show, then there's no good reason to not support us by simply going to tspaz.com first, tspaz.com. And if you're not interested in anything that I'm doing on a given day or my items or my reviews, just click on a link that says click here to shop on Amazon. Click that link. You'll go to Amazon, do your shopping, buy your stuff, spend not one penny of extra money, take no extra real time whatsoever, And we get credit for your business on Amazon. It supports our show. It is the easiest way to do this that I've ever come up with to support the show. So please consider doing that today. The next time you're thinking, I need to go to Amazon, just go to TSPAS. Easy to remember, tspaz.com, tspaz.com, and do your shopping on Amazon. Today's uh, reviewed item of the day is actually an item that was given to me by the manufacturer. It's called the Slow and Sear. And uh, those of you that know the work that I've done and the cooking I've done with a uh, product called the Smokinator up till now, man, this thing is so much better. It is an amazing, amazing, made in America, all stainless stool. And what it does is it lets you smoke and cooks low and slow on your Weber kettle grill, but it would be just as at home for indirect heat to cook real high, high temperatures, make a steak, move it over, and finish it indirect. It's awesome. If you go to T-SPAS, you can click on see our item of the day there and take a look at it, or it's just right on the uh, website. Remember, to get emails of this show when it comes out, uh, my Amazon reviews, any articles, anything that happens on the blog, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and fill out the form to be on our email list. I've got another announcement today. Um, Perma Ethos, we've been working hard to try to figure out, like, where do we go with Perma Ethos from here? Um, because managing other people's farms doesn't work. It doesn't. Um, 
And what we've come up with is empowering uh, people that are interested in permaethos. For those that don't know about permaethos, you can look it up on the site. But what we've done, for those that want to know about regenerative agriculture, permaculture, homesteading, stuff like that, we have lined up some of the biggest experts that you could find. Just incredible people. And we are doing one webinar a week at Permaethos TV. So you can just go to permaethos.tv to see all of them. And I have a, a post out today with uh, presentations lined up all the way into November. The presentations are on Tuesday. They're free live presentations if you want to see them live. They come with about a one-hour question and answer uh, session afterward. You watch them on your screen. You can ask the person questions. You can chat with other members of the audience while you're watching them. And uh, then the next day or so, we post them, and they're not free if you want the recorded version, but they're $2.99 to buy the individual uh, versions. And eventually we'll have a subscription service where you can get them all and as they come out and stuff like that. But right now we don't have that many, so we're just doing them one-off at $2.99 apiece. And uh, we have a great one tomorrow. John Pugliano is doing a one-hour presentation from our expert council. We've got people, I mean, when you look, if you go look at the list of people that we have set up already, and we're getting some really big name people now that we're proving this works, that w because we're doing one a week. I wanted to do two a week. Joe was like, I'm not sure yet. I'm not positive about that. Uh, now we're getting some big name people. We're back working them in, and we'll probably do Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, Toby Hammondway is going to be doing one of our presentations. Martian Jibinowski, uh from Open Source uh, did one that's actually available free. I did one on Ducks, the, the, the inaugural one on Ducks. That's available for free. We've got a bunch come and check them out, permaethos.tv. And again, the live ones are free. If you can attend uh, during the time slots, they're free. We could seat up to 500 people at them. So uh, we haven't had any sellout yet, but as they get more popular, we might. We've had you know a couple hundred, uh, and so you know I think we had 300 and something for mine. So uh, it might get to that point. And Perma Ethos founders, if we ever get there, you will always be able to get in first. You can also support our entire community by checking out tspbiz.com. It's a business directory, and uh, it is for people that have started business out of the Survival Podcast community. Our supporting business of the day is Survivalist Box, a monthly subscription box service for the modern survivalist. You sign up to receive a box each month, and your preparedness purchases are on autopilot. Go to survivalistbox.com or check them out on the TSP business directory. And with that, let's get into our closing song for today. So this song is by Dave Wilcox, and this is the kind of song I would have expected that I would have known. I had never heard this before, before it came in from a listener suggesting I look at it for playing at the end of a show. Um, it's called Rusty Old American Dream, and it's basically the, the car is the, is the, the narrator in the song by Dave Wilcox. It's obviously him singing, but it's like a car, you know. And one of the stanzas says, I rolled off the line in Detroit back in 1958, spent three days in the showroom, that's all I had to wait. I've been good to all who've owned me, so come on, have no fear. So have no fear. Come on, boy, put your money down and get me out of here. Um, and then there's this stanza. Now this car needs a young man to own him, one who will polish the chrome. I will give you the rest of my lifetime. Just don't let me die here alone. Just jump some juice to my battery. Give that old starter a spin. Hear me whir, sputter, backfire through the carburetor, and roar into life once again. And there's a video that I have a link to today that's basically a slideshow video the guy made. It shows all these old cars. And I got to tell you, I was, I was listening to a song. I was thinking, I really like this song and the metaphor that it is about not just cars, but the American way of life and, and, and the, the rusty old American dream where each generation could pass on to the next generation a better tomorrow. 
And right now, I think a lot of parents, especially people in my age bracket and a little bit younger, 30s to 50s, are thinking, my kids aren't going to have it as good as I did. For the first time in America, ever. And there's a, you know, there's a metaphor there. But I was watching this, and I'm looking at these old cars and thinking about these old cars rusting away, the, the ones that could still be saved. And all of a sudden, I'm getting a little emotional. And I'm thinking, that's, that's, what are you doing, man? Because I remember very clearly, um, the first truck I ever bought was a Dodge Ram. I bought it right off the showroom floor. And we had it for a long time. I think we had it for like six years. And it got to the point where, like, you know, we really need to replace this truck. It was a standard cab. It was a nice, just beautiful truck. But, you know, we, the, the, you know, my, my son had gotten bigger, and he had friends and all. Like, if we're going to have a truck, we need to have a king cab. So we, we cruise on down to the Dodge dealership, and uh, they have, you know, the advertised stuff. That they just, you know, checks their, their – their, they've written checks with their ass in the advertising that their mouth can never catch. That's how all dealers are. But we actually find one that kind of is sort of what we went down there for, and it's a nice truck. It's a blue, it was a blue one that uh, I had the wreck that I posted with when the guy took it out, and that truck is done. Um, but uh, so we buy this truck, and <laughs> – we get in it and we're leaving. And I look over at my wife and she has tears in her eyes. And I'm like, what's the matter? She goes, it was a good truck. I feel like we're abandoning it. And I've always given her hell over that. And I'm sitting here watching these cars I don't even know. And I'm getting, I'm not getting tears in my eyes, but I'm getting a little emotional. I'm thinking, oh man, that's sad. You know, kind of like watching a cartoon, like a Christmas cartoon where something bad happens and you know it's not real, but you're still thinking, that's sad. I'm thinking, what is this? And I'm realizing it is, it's the reality of these, these old vehicles being left behind, but it's also what they represented. And will that dream die with those machines? See, we're not going to keep these machines around forever. We're really not. It, it just, it, they're made of metal. Metal rusts, corrodes. It has a lifetime. There is a point where they'll wear out. And some of the, Restored stuff will be around like in museum pieces and all. But if a car is actually going to be what a car is supposed to be, if it's going to burn gas, if it's going to roll on rubber tires, if it's going to move down the road, it'll actually last longer that way than sitting improperly cared for without being specially maintained in an artificial environment. But in the end, we're still wearing it out. We don't just wear out parts. Eventually, we wear out the vehicle. And to restore it at that point, we're basically building a new one, you know? Even the frame will eventually go. But that's okay. Because stuff is just stuff. But you realize when you look at these older cars, that they are from the time when Americans believed that we could accomplish anything. And we set about for a few decades proving it. And we're wondering now if that dream is still alive. I believe that it is, because dreams aren't things. And no matter how bad this government gets, America is not a state. America is not a state. We have a state here. They call it America. That is not America. America is an ideal. America is not a place with borders and laws and government. America is an ideal that allowed the formation of a place with borders and laws and government. It was an ideal. 
It was an ideal that was so revolutionary that people from all over the world wanted to come here, not so they could wave the flag, not so they could be patriotic, but because the ideal was that they would have the opportunity to become the very best that they were capable of. That ideal is still around. That ideal lives in every single one of you. It's not a rusty old American dream. That's just the car. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, I don't look all that ragged for all the time it's been. But I'm weakened underneath me where my frame is rusted thin. And this year's state inspection I just barely passed. Won't you drive me across the country, boy, this year could be my last. I may tail fin road locomotive from the days of cheap gasoline. I'm for sale by the side of the road Going nowhere A rusty old American dream I rolled off a line in Detroit back in 1958 Spent three days in the showroom That's all I had to wait I've been good to all who own me So have no fear Come on, boy, put your money down and get me out of here. Now me tail fin road locomotive from the days of cheap gasoline. And I'm for sale by the side of the road going nowhere. Rusty old American dream. Now this car needs a young man to own him. One who will polish the chrome I will give you the rest of my lifetime But don't let me die here alone You just jump me some juice to my battery Give that old starter a spin Hear me whir, sputter, backfire through the carburetor And roar into life Tail fin road locomotive You can't polish my chrome so clean We can't fly off into the sunset together A rusty old American dream Still running A rusty old American